Welcome, everyone, to the Path 11 podcast with your hosts, April and Mike. We're excited for this interview today because we've never really covered this topic of yoga before, and we would like to introduce you to John Smirtick. He is an advanced certified Jiva Mukti teacher based in Albany, New York. He spent nearly a thousand hours studying directly with his teachers and Jiva Mukti yoga creators, Sharon Gannon and David Life, in addition to diving deep into bhakti devotional yoga with living masters. Utilizing these teachings and traditional yoga scripture as a foundation, John blends wit, groovy music, and challenging, intelligently sequenced asana from a vinyasa format to make each class a lively and unique opportunity for deep spiritual investigation. His approach supports his belief that a single yoga class holds the potential to be an actual experience where devotion, compassion, expansion, and revolution can naturally unfold. John is at the cutting edge of incorporating live music into ecstatic class experiences, working intimately with some of the best musicians, Kirtan artists, and beat makers in the world. He has crafted a unique series of Jiva Mukti-based extended format classes and workshops, which are road-tested and in-demand. John shares his passion for yoga around the globe, including mentoring at the acclaimed Jiva Mukti Yoga Teacher Training Program and leading exciting annual international yoga retreats and pilgrimages, with more to come in the future. You can visit his website at bhaktigrooveyoga.com. All right, so we would like to welcome John Smirtick onto our show today. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm good. Hey, you guys. Yeah, we're, we're great. Good. We're great. Wonderful. So Happy to be a part of the show. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I know that you're going to bring a lot of great information to our show today. And kind of how this all came about, John happens to be a yoga teacher at one of the yoga studios where I take yoga classes at Yoga Mandali in Saratoga Springs. New York. And I had never really taken any of his classes before, but I was getting ready to take more of a beginner's yoga class. And his class was just letting out. John, I don't think I've ever told you this story. And <laughs> so all of these students are like coming out and here's the yoga instructor. Everybody's giving this guy hugs and kisses. And I heard like music or chanting happening before. And everyone had so much energy coming out of your class. And I'm looking and I said, what the heck just happened in that yoga <laughs> class? <laughs> and like, I had never seen so many people just coming out. And I mean, the energy was crazy and they're loud and they're laughing and they're, everybody's hugging and kissing. And I was just like, I, well, I need to try that yoga class. I don't know what just <laughs> happened in there, but I want to, I got to try that. And that's kind of in all honesty, what led me to take some of your classes because I was really curious to see what everyone was so excited about when they were um, coming out, and uh, and I always would see what, what happened behind that door. <laughs> yeah, I know what what was going on, but I saw you know in some of your other trainings that you also incorporate really cu cool music, reggae music, hip hop music, which you know I really love, and it kind of helps to make that yoga experience go by maybe a little bit quicker. Um, so that's how you know, I came to know John and the other thing that happened in one of his classes was he will kind of, classes are usually about an hour and a half long and he talks through the entire thing. And I was in a class and all of a sudden he starts going off on this tangent, like about energy and consciousness and time space and love. And I'm thinking, 
wow, where am I right now? I thought I was taking a yoga class and this guy's Mm -hmm. talking about metaphysical stuff. So I was really intrigued by that and the way that he was able to incorporate uh, the yoga experience and all of this metaphysical metaphysical things. So I was like, we have to bring him on the show. So Hmm. that's, that's kind of how this all started. And, um, I know that John, you're actually a lawyer by trade. So we're kind of curious to know how, how did you even come to be a yoga teacher and from, from your law background to now, you know, traveling all over the world and teaching yoga, we'd like to hear your story. Definitely. You know, the, the metaphysical is, is non-different from yoga. Yoga is the the answer to all of that, it, it, it gives us this amazing technology, this technique of, of ecstasy and soul realization, really, so that time, space, these ideas and, and uh, magic, you know, creating a space of actually space for magic to arise in the classroom is, is I feel like, what it's so much is about. Um, but it's been an interesting journey to get there, you know, and, and part of that journey was Uh, was going to law school and becoming an attorney and practicing law for a little bit and just a really interesting uh, life trajectory um, from, you know, from Syracuse University and studying journalism and not being quite sure what I wanted to do after that, but having the inclination that I didn't want to do sports journalism anymore, which I studied because I didn't necessarily feel like... um, I wanted my life to revolve around athletes, which was a shift because when I went into school, I did. I used to play football and and, uh, be very much into that type of thing. And, you know, life life always brings up an interesting series of events, but... um, it's through through successes, through struggles, through through many different things that eventually I found my way into the yoga classroom. and I needed to make at a certain point, actually after law school, some really major changes in my life. You know, I was struggling with some, with some addictions. Really, was was the major impetus. And um, I was taking a few yoga classes, and I heard this one of my first yoga teachers, uh, an amazing gentleman by the name of Dan Howard. He used to live uh, by Kripalu in Lenox, Mass. Um, and at the end of class, he said something that resonated with me so so strongly. He said, letting go is not something that you do. Letting go happens when you stop hanging on. And those words that day, I I heard them, they hit me, and it was a a day that marked a big shift in my life. Um, You know, in the end, yoga didn't save me from myself, so to speak, or uh, allow me to uh, cease any behaviors that weren't serving me. But um, eventually, when I got to a point where I waved the white flag um, in surrender in those aspects of my life, I don't know necessarily why or how, but I knew that yoga was my path. It was such an interesting feeling. And I felt the pull in my heart. And um, I was very much into music always my whole life. I used to uh, you know, follow around fish and the grateful dead and maybe used to isn't <laughs> isn't the proper way to say it because i'm going to see these final three dead shows in chicago over fourth of july weekend and i still go see fish and stuff like that but it's a it's a different experience for me now um coming from a platform of of uh, uh, not using chemicals to alter consciousness but rather having this amazing technology of yoga to uh to elevate that platform and uh, in a sustainable way but um I was just getting into yoga in 2006, and 
Michael Franti happened to be playing at Mountain Jam by my house in Hunter, New York. And uh, Michael Franti was a big inspiration of mine. I loved his music. I loved the political uh, message and the uh, the fieriness of it, but also some of the reggae vibe and things he was doing. And um, But I knew that I didn't want to continue to put myself in the same people, places and things scenarios and go to music festivals and things like that, um, which which were dangerous to the project that I was trying to engage in, and that was to to stay sober, really. So um, I happened to look, all my friends are at that festival, and I happened to look at his webpage and saw he was doing a weekend retreat with uh, two people that I had never heard of, Sharon Gannon and David Life, and it was called Power to the Peaceful Weekend at, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, and it was a yoga and music and spiritual activism um, retreat with uh, with Michael Franti and Sharon and David, and uh, they taught what was called Jiva Mukti Yoga, and I had no idea who they were, and I was a little bit intimidated, but um, I went. I, I decided to make decision to go, and as it turns out, my my teachers showed up that weekend, which was actually this weekend in 2006. So, so what is that? Eight years ago? Nine years ago? Um, Father's Day weekend. So that's kind of how it all happened. And then once I became a, a yoga teacher, I, actually, I met them in 2006. Um, I can, they, they taught at their house in Woodstock in 2006 in the summer of August. And I went twice and everybody was buzzing. Are you going to do the Jiva Mukti teacher training? And most of the people at the classes were. And I'm like, me? No, it's never. It's not for me. And uh over the next few months and weeks, I got all the books required for the teacher training. I read them. And then when the teacher training came up, I had the, uh, the time, space, means, and inclination. So I did it. And um, it was a revolutionary experience. And I've been teaching ever since. So that was, began teaching in May 2007 and uh, been teaching since then. And uh, also, I, I was practicing law probably Again, I, I practiced in, in 05 and then stopped and then 2007 until 2003, I believe, or, 2000, or 2013, I'm sorry. Um, so right now I'm just, uh, I'm just teaching yoga at this moment. So Awesome. And can you explain what's the difference between the Jiva Mukti yoga and maybe some traditional other yoga teachings that are out there? Jiva Mukti Yoga, I would say, like many other names of yogas out there, um, is, is a brand name that my teachers, Sharon Gannon and David Life, created um, to, to give a name to a method that always tries to strive to remember what the whole purpose of yoga is, to, to realize the self, that, that eternal indwelling principle that is beyond birth and death. Um, jiva means the soul, the indwelling soul, the, the individuated soul within this mind-body organism, and mukti means liberation. Um, and the, the jivan mukta is the one who knows their eternal identity while in the body. In other words, a free one, a yogi, uh, one that, so to speak, has stepped outside of the cycle of birth and death, which is called samsara, um, which yoga is really all about, the technology to... Uh, to bring an end to suffering and to bring a, a sense of true eternal identity and the connection to the source. So Jiva Mukti is the name that they gave to the method that they created, which is very much so 
traditional yoga in all ways, and in fact integral, um, in that what they saw was that in their experience, and Sharon and David are, are very much modern masters, so much yoga that's happening in the West is really uh, due to them and, and what they've bought to, to Western yoga, practitioners anyway, um, by keeping it authentic but also relatable to people that don't happen to be in India or have a different cultural upbringing or understanding um, without changing the roots of the practice and the roots of the scriptures and things like this. So they studied Ashtanga yoga with Patabi Joyce and Sri K. Patabi Joyce is one of the, one of the great masters of yoga who came from the, the one source basically of most modern yogas. And this was Krishnamacharya, a, a, a man in India, a gentleman, a saint in India who went to the Himalayas to study with the masters um, and then came back down and kind of reestablished what we would call Hatha Yoga. Hatha, H-A-T-H-A. Um, ha means sun and Ta means moon. And Hatha Yoga is the path of actually by using the body and by the application of force to actually bring about enlightened states of consciousness and the psycho-spiritual evolution through the, through the chakras, through the, these energy centers in our body, uh, to bring about enlightenment this way. Um, and I wouldn't say that the, the, the practice was fading so much, but it was probably a little bit more obscure and esoteric and practiced in, you know, probably like certain types of uh, communities like those that would worship Shiva would do uh, some, some asanas and do some of these practices like kriyas, cleansing practices and, and mudras, other practices to, to bring about um, elevated states of consciousness with the body, which is really a, a microcosm of the macrocosm, as above, so below, so to speak. Um, so Krishnamacharya took these practices and uh, made them more readily available in India. And he worked with a few particular individuals. One of them was his son, uh, Desikachar. Another one was um, BKS Iyengar, Mr. Iyengar, who's, who passed away recently, last year, um, and is a legend in, in, in modern yoga. And then also Sri K. Patabi Joyce, um, who is also a legend and passed away a few years ago. Um, in yoga, we would actually say left, left the body because all that passes away is in material form. And the great ones know the, the soul just transcends beyond that. Um, so Patabi Joyce created a system of yoga called Ashtanga yoga, um, which is which in this method is a physical practice um, with a very uh, a very regimented, rigorous um, series of asanas or postures um, that were unchanging. So each each series that he created was a set of postures that didn't change. It was it, it was the same sequence every time you practiced it. Um, now ashtanga also means uh, eight limbs. Ashta eight anga limb. Ashtanga is the eight-limb path of yoga philosophy, one of the six main philosophies of India, and it comes from Patanjali Yoga Sutra. And the eight-limb path are these, these eight steps. Some of the steps are actually broken down into other steps, or you could call them rungs in the ladder to, to freedom, to liberation, and to, to opening to great love, really. Uh, but he called his 
he called his practice Ashtanga. So you could almost say that was a brand name, but the whole idea was to infer that that yoga isn't possible just through the postures, but also through these eight limbs. So Sharon and David studied um, intensely with Patabi Joyce. And originally Patabi Joyce, probably in the 70s, didn't ever perceive working with any Westerners because of a critical idea. And the idea was Westerners didn't follow a vegetarian diet. So he didn't believe that yoga uh, would be possible for them. Um, and then all of a sudden he encountered a group of seekers who, uh, who in fact were vegetarian and who were in fact into these esoteric practices. Um, and then, you know, they started bringing them back to the West a little bit. And, and ultimately Sharon and David um, entered into a very serious student-teacher, guru-disciple relationship with Patabi Joyce um, and advanced very much through his system. Um, and David Life, David G, my teacher, eventually became one of very few people in the world certified by Patabi Joyce to teach the Advanced Primary Series, um, which is a very complicated series of postures. So Sharon and David became very adept at the yoga asanas, the postures. But what they observed was that, especially in their visits to India, which were many at that time, they would see people doing the asanas, they, you know, doing the physical practice. And then they would see people doing uh, scriptural reading and studying yogic scriptures and yoga philosophy. And they'd see people meditating and they'd see people doing kirtan or chanting the, the holy names of God in that tradition. And then they'd see people, um, you know, getting deep into sound uh, as, a, as a path, which, they, which is called nada yoga, the yoga of sound, of, of sacred sound and deep listening. And so what they, what they thought was, it's so interesting that there's all these separate boxes. And in so many ways, what Sharon and David are, are, are about is the removal of these, these boundaries that we sort of superimpose on ourselves and that culture superimposes on us. And they wanted to create a system of yoga that incorporated all of this, that, cre that created a method where people, that, where people were meditating, people were chanting the holy names of God, were learning Sanskrit, the language of the scriptures, which is said to be realized directly by the saints and seers in samadhi, in the state of divine communion. Um, you know, to do the asanas, to incorporate a non-harming lifestyle and all of these different things into one practice along with sacred sound so that there was a seamless integration that was true to the roots of it all, unwaveringly so, but in a way that Western practitioners could relate to and actually celebrate. And, and it is an, a brilliant, brilliant system. And that's what they in fact have created. And it has, it has really taken root and has become one of the nine traditional internationally recognized methods of hatha yoga. So it is still very much uh, traditional yoga in all forms. Um, in, with the base of hatha yoga, or using the body from, a, a, from doing a relatively rigorous asana or posture practice, um, and that's the springboard for deep spiritual investigation. And the, the practice also... Um, the method they created also includes five tenets. So in addition, each class in some way incorporates and operates from the foundation of that rigorous practice as the launching point 
for the investigation of spirituality, um, but also from these five pillars, which create a really nice, unshakable foundation that guides us on the journey. And, and those five tenets are ahimsa, which is a, a, a non-harming lifestyle. Ahimsa is the, in, in Ashtanga yoga, the first rung in the ladder to yoga is actually the first component. And that is, um, himsa is vi the violence or harming and the A in front of it means not. So ahimsa is non-harming. Um, and they it's a, a non-harming lifestyle, um, ethical vegetarianism, veganism, um, beginning to see the, the one and the many uh, and to begin to actually uh, bring about an understanding that all species um, have that divine spark and all beings want that happiness and freedom. And if that is what we're seeking for, uh, then we need to find a way to live it and create it in our lives. Um, and what could be more important, you know, than where we live, who we live with, and and what we eat. So that that idea uh, really applies to our environments and to to all concepts like social activism. And so they also in that encourage us to, you know, to not not be in a cave in a little blissful meditation bubble. Um, per se, or to, to run from the world, but to actually engage it with skillful means um, and to, to be agents of great change, which we know we, we can't be until we make those changes within, our, within ourselves. Um, so Ahimsa is that, that first primary pillar. I mean, there's actually no weight assigned to the tenets of Jivamukta Yoga, but that, that's the first one I brought up. In fact, Sharon, um, Sharon Gannon, my teacher, said that she really only became a yoga teacher and developed the Jivamukta Yoga method, um, and this is a direct quote actually, as a means to contribute to the understanding that extending compassion to other animals is essential to our spiritual evolution as human beings. So that's a big statement. Um, she really became a yoga teacher, and her and David created Jiva Mukti Yoga um, uh, from a from a big perspective for for animal rights activism and to bring a to bring a voice to the voiceless, so to speak, and to bring consciousness onto these these beings. Um, the, another pillar is bhakti, and bhakti yoga is I shouldn't say pillar. I, I, I'm not sure why I'm saying pillar. It's traditionally a tenet, but I say pillar because to me. Um, these pillars are this, this beautiful foundation, which is Jiva Mukti Yoga. So just, just to clarify that. But bhakti is devotion. Um, and in India, most yogis or aspiring yogis are bhaktas, ones that are lovers of God, that engage in scriptural study of, uh, of the different deities or the process of surrender, of surrendering the ego and uh, using the body and mind as an instrument of divine will. Um, it's devotion, the yoga of love, um, which encourages things like kirtan. And kirtan is the call and response chanting of transcendental ancient mantras and the holy names of God in various traditions. Japa, which is the repetition of mantra, um, which is pretty much like the predecessor to something like the rosary. Um, in a religious understanding and also the idea that yoga itself isn't a religion. Um, and that uh, their firm belief that yoga is not possible without devotion. Um, also, this, this idea comes up again in Yoga Sutra in the Eight Limb Path Ashtanga. Patanjali says, Ishwara Pranidhana Dva, 
Ishwara is Lord or the controller and Prana is a life force and Dan is to give. It says that actually the one-step plan to yoga is to offer your life force, your being to Ishwara. And the wonderful thing is potentially doesn't say who that has to be for the individual. And it's an even boon that it's included because yoga philosophy comes from a philosophy that doesn't have a Godhead proper. Um, but saying, you know, yoga is possible by, uh, by the surrender, by devotion. And uh, in every path laid out in Yoga Sutra for the realization of yoga, that Ishwara Pranidhan Anva is included. So this essential idea that bhakti or devotion is quintessential to the path. So another tenet of Jiva Mukti Yoga is dhyana, which is meditation, um, the practice of, of sitting and listening and silence and connecting to the changeless reality within. Um, it's really about trying to establish the, the witness consciousness, which in Sanskrit there's a term called sakshi, the eternal silent witness. Um, and the idea is if you can actually begin to, through practice, shift the focus from the attachment to the movement of mind maybe to a different point of focus like the movement of the breath at the nose or the rings of the nostrils or even a, a mantra and it doesn't even have to be in another language as simple and as potent as the mantra let go um, reminding ourselves with each passing breath to let go of that attachment and of limitation the possibility exists that in that spaciousness can actually observe the movement of mind and the passing of thought as this detached entity and if you can begin to and maybe you know that thing isn't you uh, so every thought that passes that usually just passes through us and we take it on as our identity or reality not realizing that there is a potential space to to witness it in this type of consciousness which is more transcendental witness consciousness in other words not affected by conditioning or the movement of the mind through infinite lifetimes of thoughts, desires, things like that. And if you start to actually establish that, um, you can see that those thoughts that we thought were us aren't necessarily us. And that, that ability begins to be the bridge from individual consciousness to universal consciousness. And my teacher, Darren Gannon, would say that makes us cosmopolitan citizens of the cosmos. Um, another tenet is nada. Nada is... is uh, sound, deep listening and sound as essential to the path, which incorporates, you know, music into classes that may even be hip and popular if it reminds us of the goal of, uh, of yoga, chanting ancient mantras and verses from scriptures, um, and even spoken word interspersed throughout the class, maybe from revolutionaries like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi or, you know, even modern people. Um, uh, Ingrid Newkirk, uh, the founder of, of PETA, equal, uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatments of, of Animals. And uh, so using that to actually allow us to be inspired and to maybe even spark a remembrance of, of who we are at the most profound level. Um, hatha yoga, the practice of the, uh, of the asanas and, and certain other practices like cleansing practices and, and um, breathing practices. They say one of the whole points is to awaken which they call the anahata nadam, the unstruck sound, actually that, that sound of the universe, that inner and outer om um, that we're normally not tuned to. Uh, and, and awaking this inner sound, this nadam through the practices, actually begins to uh, allow us to then really m meditate on that sound and be 
overcome that vibratory essence of the universe as as an actual path. Nada yoga is considered to be a, a, a journey itself to to yoga. Um, and then lastly, the, the, one of the last pillars, again, not in any order, is Shastra. And Shastra is scripture. In other words, let's keep it rooted to source and to tradition. Um, in particular, uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra, which I've already referenced, um, Bhagavad Gita, which is a, a, a classic world scripture, um, and uh, Hatha Yoga Pradapika, which is a slightly more esoteric text uh, that, that codifies a lot of the Hatha the yoga practices or the postures and the breathing exercises of pranayams, um, kriyas cleansing practices and uh, mudras, practicing these certain energetic seals and locks to, uh, to, to bring about elevated consciousness um, and also studying uh, Sanskrit alphabet and grammar and things like that. So I would say in a nutshell, that is Juva Mukti Yoga, but that's a pretty big nutshell right there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that I um, wanted to talk about when we had a chance to, you know, meet prior to this and just chat in the coffee shop was, and I don't, I'm not going to be able to put it as eloquently as you did, but that whole concept about how yoga and the practice of yoga can bring you into the body to have more of this human experience, you know, in regards to the fact that we know that we are spirit. And that sometimes, you know, people will practice this out-of-body experience or to, you know, travel within their dreams and have a better understanding of the larger picture of consciousness. But that since we are here having a physical experience, can you explain a little bit how that concept of yoga brings us more into that human experience? Definitely. I think one of the great things about hatha yoga, the, the physical practice, is that it starts from the common launching point of the body. That's the one thing that we all have in common. And it's nice for many of us to say, yes, I am soul, I am spirit soul, but most of us have not actually made that direct realization. Uh, and a lot of it, it can be a head trip and uh, a, a lot of just movement of consciousness. So I think in many ways, uh, the yoga practice uh, allows us to actually become embodied completely. So the consciousness, this light, this energy, it fills the entire form. It's no longer just between our ears, so to speak. So we're actually bringing about this, this ability to, to distribute consciousness, even at a cellular level, head to toe, to really embody the form that we've actually chosen to take the incarnation in. Um, but it, it leads to me to some questions like, well, what does it mean to be human? Because you look around and, and, and humans are, you know, and, and I'm not separate from this statement. You know, we, we do some very interesting things. We're, we're the only species that actually destroys the place that we live, the, the environment that we actually live in. And there's so much war and so much misunderstanding. So the exploration of the idea, what does it even mean to be human, um, started for me from a concept from an amazing Michael Franti song, uh, Stay Human. Uh, and he, he, it's a beautiful song. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world stay human. Um, and then my teacher Sharon Gannon had a poem that she had wrote called uh, Unbecoming Human, which was sort of this idea that yoga is the practice of kind of uh, moving beyond uh, the cultural conditioning to enter into that spiritual state um, and unbecome human, to, to become divine. So I started looking into the idea, well, then what actually is being human? And started to investigate this concept of human nature, right? This idea of human nature. And it's a common thing, right? And we hear it, 
But it's actually an illusion because human nature isn't separate from nature herself. And the moment we say human nature, like, right, it's human nature to war, it's human nature to enslave the animal nations and all of these different things. Uh, because, of course, humans and our limited vision are at some uh, imagined endpoint of evolution. So other things and species and beings are under us and we have the right to exploit, dominate and subjugate. Well, yoga, in particular, the Jiva Mukti method is this radical process, radical meaning root, getting to the root, the root cause of this disease, this disconnect from the earth, from ourselves and from all living entities and actually becoming embodied in this form full of compassion, grace and connection. Um, to actually see ourselves not separate from mother nature, but as a part of it. And in that there's an innate express acknowledgement of the, the oneness of all of being or at least an aspiration in a, in a way through yoga, through the great teachers and scriptures to find a way where our thoughts, words, and deeds actually bring, are to bring us to a state of, of freedom, of connection, of liberation, but in the process to actually create a lifestyle that brings about the most amount of freedom for other beings, maybe even becoming a liberator of beings, or at least trying to cause the least amount of suffering we can. So in Jiva Mukti, this Patanjali Yoga Sutra, one of the only ones where he mentions asana, and asana in the West has become known as posture, the postures that we do in a yoga class. Asana actually means seat, and the seat is the connection to the earth. In India, the asana is what the guru sat on and the teacher sat on. Where, where they sat became a holy place. They'd build ashrams around the seat because the master gave the teachings from there. So the asana is really the seat, that which connects us to the earth. So, so much of this practice, and particularly the Jiva Mukti Yoga method, is this revolutionary but very rooted idea that asana is about how we connect to the earth to the earth and to all beings. So ultimately, this is all about relation, you know, how we relate to ourselves, where we have disconnected from the physical form um, and from, from our hearts, where the soul resides and from these concepts like that are closely associated with our essence, which is this divine love, like compassion, grace, mercy, forgiveness, um, to investigate deeply where we don't connect where we have been culturally conditioned, where we have built boxes of limitation, where we have bought into those that have been superimposed on us from culture, to actually break free of that idea that human nature is separate, um, of speciesism even, and these types of things, to actually see that, what is it to be human? And human comes from the same root as humility, and humility is an essential ingredient to spiritual practice. Uh, in other words, being right-sized, seeing yourself as a divine spark, but actually seeing every other living entity as that same part and parcel of the supreme, right? So, human and humility come from the root hummus, which is of the earth. And in Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says, Stira, sukham, asanam, the connection to the earth, the asan, should be steady and joyful. So I started 
thinking with my beloved teacher Sharon one day as we were exploring this concept that maybe what Patanjali was telling us was that in order to become a free one, a yogi, one who steps outside of the cycle of birth and death, outside of linear time into infinite possibility and infinite love, is actually the one whose relations in all form have become stira, and sukham, joyful, implying a third, mutually beneficial. So maybe human means overcoming the disease of disconnect that we experience in our own physical bodies, our emotional bodies, mental bodies, coming into soul contact, but in that, reestablishing contact with all the tribes, with all the nations. And maybe it is in that connection to the earth with steadiness and joy that we become human. And maybe when we become human in this form, fully actually embodying this form that we've chosen, maybe we don't have to come back anymore into this cycle. It was a really radical kind of idea and concept that, um, that we were playing around with and I think is, is almost directly implied in Yoga Sutra um, in its own way. Yeah, and that actually brings me into... Um kind of the next question about not maybe not having to come back into this cycle which that sounds kind of like reincarnation and needing to come back to redo stuff yeah you know i also should say though as we were talking my my teacher sharon gannon is very clear that there can be enlightened and liberated animals we just don't perceive it um um, you know, there can be animals that have come and they come back to teach us even. So even the, the idea that it's only from the human form um, that we can reach that platform uh, really allows us to still keep ourselves separate in possibility um, and in vision from, from other forms of life, which actually all contain the same essence. But as you said, though, yoga philosophy, the whole philosophy of yoga, and yoga means... Um, it comes from the root yuj, Y-U-J, which means to yoke. To yoke, I guess, you could start with mind, body, with, you know, with the indwelling soul, that indwelling, unchanging principle within that the scriptures say is sat, chit, ananda, truth, consciousness, and bliss, absolute, which is divine love, uh, unex- uh, unalloyed, unapologetic, ecstatic, the same love that we come from. And that we will return to. We actually are. Uh, So yoga, they would also say my teachers, their teacher said, is a state where nothing is missing. Complete fullness and realization. There is nothing missing at all. Um, Self-realization, it's called. And my teacher, Sharonji, would say the realization of the oneness of being behind the forms um, that dance in life. There is one, one essence uh, and if we can actually lift the veils of cultural conditioning and seeing with preference, we can begin to see with sama darshinaha, equal vision, to actually see the one behind the many, despite how we, what culture tells us value and utility is in regard to another human, another species, this, that, the other thing. Um, in fact, many of the scriptures say that The path to yoga is to begin to see the beloved or the one in the many. And as you start to actually live in such a way, you enter into your own heart where you make the ecstatic realization that you are that as well. But the whole of this yoga philosophy is is fundamentally based upon the idea that the soul continues to take on bodies uh, 
because of misidentification with mind and body through infinite lifetimes. And in that identification, there is an essential obstacle. It's called the klesha, and that is avidya, ignorance, not knowing who we really are, a case of mistaken identity, as it were. So then because of that, avidya, we have uh, and this is from Yoga Sutra as well, these kleshas, asmita, excessive ego attachment. We think we're this mind-body, we don't identify as, you know, as transcendental spirit. And because of that, we get this, we, we fight our entire life to create this identity, and then we'll fight to the death to protect it. But it's based on actually what is finite, material energy, material form, all of these different things. Uh, and then, so because of this misunderstanding and because of this ego, then there becomes um, raga and dvesha, attractions and aversions. We run to things that bring us pleasure and, that, uh, and then we run from things that bring pain. And then because of this whole bag of identities and likes and dislikes and seeking pleasure, seeking pleasure generally to our detriment and things that will never bring lasting pleasure, we have a benevesha, which is actually clinging to life, which the, the saints and scholars have said really is fear of death, fear of losing this physical form. Um, so because of all of these things, we act uh, in a way that our actions create uh, attachment to the reaction and all of these desires based on misidentity. And it is that karma. Karma comes from the root to act, but it's also the universal law of cause and effect that whatever you do comes back to you so that it may happen in this lifetime or another lifetime, but because of this continual misidentification in acting for the fruits of uh, or, or acting for the fruits of the action and being bound to the fruits, we continue to come back based on our own actions and desires, even as much so as choosing the uh, Yoga Sutra says the family we're born into, the species, the class, and the circumstances, and even the allotment of pleasure and pain we experience in that life. Yoga provides the technology to realize your eternal identity beyond the identification and attachment to mind-body so that you actually realize who you are. It's the answer, the actual techniques, a process that you, is experiential in beyond mind into, the, into feeling, that eternal identity, that bliss, that contentment, that peace, that joy, that which you really are, that exists beyond the body, then in theory, stepping outside of the entire cycle of birth and death. So actually yoga philosophy is, is pinned on the idea that we absolutely continue to take bodies um, until we are realized. And that, that's, that's the whole of the philosophy um, really from which it springs. So the philosophy comes and the practices to bring about freedom from suffering from misidentification. Now, I want to take a step back a minute. You talked about, you know, being human and, and everything and, you know, dealing with working in the system and, you know, what was the moment that you decided, you know, did you have, well, did you have a specific moment where, you know, you said, aha, you know, I had that moment, that aha moment and said, you have to leave, you felt like you had to leave your you know, a, a good job as a lawyer and to just focus on yoga. Was there a specific thing that attracted you to it? 
You know, my, my teacher Sharon Gannon says that if you're practicing yoga in this lifetime, you've been practicing yoga for infinite lifetimes. Um, very many anyway, I shouldn't say infinite, but many lifetimes. Um, sometimes you just get exposed to something and it clicks. Like so much of this, the yoga and philosophy I'm into, like I had no inclination towards it, never heard of it, grew up in a Roman Catholic orientation, reincarnation. I never even considered it. Veganism never considered it, any of these things, you know. But then sometimes you hear something and, you know, as Bob Marley says, uh, when you when you feel it, you know it, Lord. And, and it just clicked. I heard it and I knew it is truth, which also lends me, leads me to believe that I, I had heard it before in another lifetime, so maybe it wasn't the first time. But really, the impetus to even get to this point, I did have my mom and sister were practicing yoga on and off for years, yoga asanas. And, um, you know, the aha moment was that I had been exposed to the practice and the technology, and I quite literally was really getting sick and tired of being sick and tired and creating my own suffering. Um, and that, and that was the moment when I saw that this was a way to freedom, not only, you know, in doing the physical practice, but in a worldview and in a system of behaviors and observations and how I treat others and myself, you know, the relations and all of these things, it provides that means to actually live, um, you know, beyond any lofty goals of enlightenment or, you know, any of the, the, the highest possibilities, which are very real also, but just a very grounded, human, content, useful life where I'm not causing suffering to myself. First, I had to end that, right? And then, and then eventually the light dawned that actually the way to enlightenment, uh, the root cause, as my teacher Sharon would say, quoting the Dalai Lama, the root cause of enlightenment is compassion. So actually starting to not only stop creating suffering for myself, but to live in a way that can actually begin to alleviate suffering for all beings, um, you know, to the best of my ability. And, and it just came along at the right time in my life. And it was it was just, aha, it was that. And then meeting Sharon and David was just the icing, you know, on the cake and, and the, the fructification of all of it and the solidification of all of it. And then really diving deep into the philosophy and practice. And, um, and I've also met a few bhakti yoga masters, some living masters in the devotional tradition. Um, His Holiness Radhana Swami Maharaj, uh, who was an American-born Swami. He has an amazing book called The Journey Home, an autobiography of an American Swami, um, a very revolutionary teacher doing amazing projects in India and in the world, alleviating suffering, feeding 1.2 million children in India six days a week. 900,000 of those are vegan meals and a really, really amazing being that has um, offered his life as an instrument of divine will. And in that you know, begins to access divine love, divine energy that is so beyond what we have when we identify with the material form um, and the finite and the ego and just a living example of a lot of this as well. And then another amazing saint, Sadhu Maharaj, um, who is a, 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 would say a God-realized being. His, his consciousness is always yoked to the Most High and he teaches from a very transcendental platform. And they're teaching about love of, love of God uh, and in that uh, that directly implies um, 
environmentalism and activism and all of these different things, which allow us to perceive the one and the many and then find a way to live and act that actually makes that a reality. Well, I just I just think it's so interesting. I, I never really realized just how deep yoga was. I mean, to be honest, it's, I think it's kind of cool to hear that if you were doing it in this lifetime, that you've probably been doing it in past lifetimes. Because as soon as I took my first class, I felt really connected to it. But my whole intention was just, oh, I hear it's good for you. You know, I like exercise had, you know, played sports all through high school and college myself too. So it was just like another way of, you know, getting that exercise in, but maybe a little bit gentler as I'm getting older. And again, out of all of the yoga classes that I had taken, I've never really heard yoga explained in such a way during the class like you have, which made me say, oh, maybe I should pay a little more attention. It seems like that it's a lot more than exercise. Um, and it obviously is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing that's happening is that I think that any yoga is good yoga. The systems, the, the systems created by the, the yogis, you know, the, the enlightened beings and seers, sarishis, they're amazing practices and they work just on their own potency. It's really brilliant how they're created to actually access uh, the body's uh, energy channels and uh, to to evolve consciousness through the chakras and psycho-spiritual centers of awareness. So as long as the yoga practice is an intelligent practice um, led in such a way, it has the potential to to do that, even if you don't know it's doing that. So sometimes you walk out of a yoga class and you're like, I feel amazing and your life starts to change. Well, the practices are so amazing and intelligent that they'll do that anyway. But I think some of the thing that's happening in the West is that there is no connection to what it really is and to the spirituality of it. And it has just become exercise um, or rigorous exercise. And even in some, some conditions, uh, an ego endeavor. Look at me. I mean, I don't know. You don't have to look much further than Facebook and Instagram and social media to see how much yoga has, quote unquote, yoga has blown up. But a lot of it is, uh, look at look at my body, look what I can do. And in so many ways, that's the antithesis. But it's also exciting because yoga is growing. Um, and there's an, a, a, such a vast interest in the West uh, that it's amazing. So, so to me, it's important to make sure we always keep it rooted to to the masters and to the scriptures and why it was created, why we're doing it, you know, and, and that's a brilliant thing about Jiva Mukti Yoga, the way they created it. So, so we don't forget and we don't think that we're, you know, creating this, who knows how old, five, 10,000 year old tradition even, um, you know, so we, we attribute it to where it came from um, and, and let it happen from that platform and then with a little information and a little philosophy and a little understanding, even the practice becomes even more revolutionary. Um, and in the end, it's the it's some of those subtleties because it's so much about relationship, how we relate to the earth, how we relate to all the forms. Right. We take on during class the mountain, the snake, the warrior, the sage. Um, the cat, the cow, the child. So all of these different forms, it begins to give us the opportunity if we actually connect with the breath with an elevated selfless intention 
to allow the practice to be so much more than physical, but an exploration of form, of archetype, of, of which forms we prefer over the other. Some, some of the asanas, postures are, are harder to execute, meaning, you know, maybe involve a, a different understanding of uh, the distribution of energy and consciousness, you know. If we keep Keep the breath the same. If we keep this elevated selfless intention, we actually begin to not think but feel what is the same behind the forms. We start to understand how energy and consciousness actually come to create form. Some may say that's the whole point of life in this realm, the, the material realm, how to actually manifest and create. And asana, taking our bodies into these archetypes and these sacred geometrical forms allows us to experience the merging of energy and consciousness in this in this human body to understand the creation of form, even complex, complicated forms that are very gravity bound and in that potentially allowing us to access things like levitation and levity and lightness. Um, you know, not only uh, this uplifting, but like this, this spaciousness and levity in our joints and our bodies and in our minds. And, you know, even the possibility that through these archetypes and through these different energy structures, we begin to see sacred geometry. In other words, the energy signature of the creator behind all of these forms when we actually begin to feel how energy moves. And we get potentially profound insight into so much more than just the material body, but the energy body, the light body, um, the emotional body, and the bliss body. Uh, and it is said ultimately that the soul is, is covered by those bodies, those sheaths or koshas. So it's almost like starting with the physical form, peeling back, peeling back until we get to that which is in the center of it all, the Atman or the Jiva, the soul. And, and so the practice, yes, physical, it actually stretches the body amazing. It brings the body into a great state of material health so that we can operate like at a maximum capacity while we are in this form. But also the, the potential revolution and realization and it is so much even deeper than that. In other words, we, yes, we start by stretching the body, but what we're doing really is stretching the very fabric of who we think we are and what is possible. And to me, that's the revolutionary potential. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, there's, you just gave us a lot of, a lot of information. And I, I, I'm kind of like with April where, you know, I always saw yoga as uh you know exercise uh, you know mild exercise just stretching and posing and breathing but i've never really connected it with everything you were saying but i, I always actually kind of stayed away from it because i'm about as flexible as a crowbar but it, <laughs> <laughs> you know just hearing you know what you're saying you know it's, it's like i i want to i guess look into it more than you know you kind of yeah. opened up a whole nother side of it that I never really realized. And for, for someone like me, where, how do you suggest I should start? Should I just go to like a regular yoga class? Um, or do you, do you recommend a certain type of training to get started? I really feel like a strong fundamental uh, foundation is important for doing the actual postures. Um, 
so starting, you know, especially if you're new, starting starting at it at, at a beginner's level or introductory level, to actually to learn a little bit uh, of body awareness, to because alignment becomes very important. You know, m- the tradition that I practice, it is pretty rigorous. So you want to make, you know, we have to tend to the body and make sure we're doing things properly because the potential exists if we move from ego and not from a place of breath connection that we can actually get hurt. You know, so much of this though is about, it is about bringing yoga in, in all of its wonder, whether it's the loftiest goal in philosophy, which actually exists behind all of it anyway. Um, you know, or it just simple chair yoga, you know, for someone who is injured or, or, or um, senior citizens, perhaps in, in like a, in a retirement home to actually bring about a little bit of ease in the body and some mobility and just a little bit of, of lightness and breath connection. So that we're so disconnected from the breath a lot, just actually experiencing the freedom of that. Um, all populations, you know, at-risk youth, things like this, taking this technology to everybody. So, you know, I think from, you know, from that platform, yoga can be many things to many people. And all of, all of what we've been talking about underlies it all. And getting started, I really strongly believe like a beginner introductory level class is important. So you learn about the body a little bit, and then you can go as deep as you want into the physical practice. We'll make making sure you safely tend to the body. And then yoga really is brilliant by energetically purifying the body. It alleviates disease in the material body um, in a pretty amazing way. So yeah, I say like always start, start from the beginning um, and get a nice foundation. Uh, and I always say the teacher is very important. Having a, a teacher that's competent and can take through, um, you know, learning even how to breathe properly might be the first step and then beginning to incorporate breath and movement and then these different forms. And there definitely isn't a, uh, a lack of uh, yoga studios anywhere now, probably from the most obscure little towns to, uh, you know, the most major cities in America, the yoga asana practice, the posture practice is, is kind of everywhere. Um, Sharon and David created a, a four week introduction series. So a beginner series of four weeks uh, to introduce um, the concepts, uh, particularly the asanas that are that we traditionally do in Jiva Mukti Yoga in a structured, very um, conscious way to people who have never done yoga. And then they even have a beginner's vinyasa class. And vinyasa is the, the linking, uh, the conscious placement uh, of asanas with breath um, that has become very popular also in America, to begin to actually learn the integration of movement and breath and the profound connection to flow and life that that can, then that can create too. So um, within Jiva Mukti, they have, you know, the, again, they have the beginners uh, four-week session, they have the vinyasa beginner session, and um, also the open-level Jiva Mukti classes, which are for everyone, uh, for all levels. So the teacher would be able to uh, hopefully navigate and uh, navigate to the beginner that's also in the class as well as the advanced person to help them with props and things like that. Um, And also there is in Jiva Mukti an hour class called Spiritual Warrior, a set series of postures that uh, that you can do in an hour. Um, So if you don't happen to have an hour and a half or something like that, where you can get a really balanced practice in, um, 
and feel really good, like on a daily basis. So many, many options and many possibilities. And it's, uh, you know, one of the biggest restrictions to uh, starting yoga is a misconception of, of even what it is. I mean, it can be as simple as stretching and it can be as, um, you know, it can be as different as using a harmonium to chant the holy names of God, you know, or maybe you come to Jiva Mukti and we do all of it. <laughs> so it's an interest. it's a beautiful, interesting thing. Great. Now for people who are in the New York area and local, where can they find you if they want to come and take one of your classes? Currently I am teaching Jiva Mukti Yoga at Heart Space Yoga in Albany, uh, 747 Madison Ave over by Washington Park, and then also at Yoga Mandali, 454 Broadway in Saratoga Springs. Uh, both are really amazing studios in the Northeast and also travel around and, and do some teaching, uh, Woodstock and some international retreats and stuff like that. Been very, very blessed by my teachers. But uh, also, if, if anyone's interested in Jiva Mukti Yoga, um, the, what we call the mothership. The main center is in Union Square in New York City, Broadway and 13th. Um, and the, the website to find out more about that method and practice is jivamuktiyoga.com. J-I-V-A-M-U-K-T-I, yoga.com. Um, and that's also a great resource as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, John. We covered a lot in this uh, podcast and would love to have you back on again, maybe to even give you a chance to talk about what some of your pilgrimages are about when you you know, take people over to India and um, also some of the other things that you have coming up in the next year or so. All right. Sounds good. Well, yeah, right. I, hope in the, I hope in some small way that I could serve your your, your program and your mission and your view and also my teachers as well. I, it's such a pleasure. I'm really honored that you guys asked me. Truly. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Thank you, guys. Have a beautiful day. Okay, you too. You too. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at Vimeo.com, GuyMTV.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.